Father, thank you. We're another day closer to your son's return. Another day closer to a world that's dominated by righteousness and peace, genuine love, by his presence as he reigns forever and ever. Many, if not most, of the world doesn't believe in that. They've ignored all the indicators throughout history of your son's coming, fulfilled prophecy, his presence, his declaration by his life and death, his resurrection, your written word that has survived burning and people trying to throw it away, tear it up and destroy it. And here we sit with you being faithful, you the one teaching us the privilege of drawing closer to you. I pray that would happen today, that you might be glorified, that you might be pleased, and that each one in this room would have a closer walk with you. So bless our time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I succeeded this morning in spilling my water, although I didn't touch it, but it was my water. So to make all the rest of you feel comfortable and at home that have spilled coffee, tea, whatever you spilled around here. We're going to have a meal in here. We'll spill more things. It's just what we do. So we are grateful for all that you provide. You want me to go in the nursery? Oh, oh okay. I can't even blame it on Kimber. I guarded it the first time. This is exciting for me. I am not transitioning today. I am moving on in my walk with God. Tomorrow will be no different than yesterday. Um, next month, we are going off on a trip for a short while. I'll be here next Sunday. You better be here. I'm going to be greeting at the door, wearing a special shirt that has been designed for me. And so you have to come to see what it is. And those who come cannot tell anybody what it was if they weren't here. I have to come up with some way to get you guys to come back to church. We're entering into the last message here of this series. I did not plan it to be my last message. When I set this up clear back in the spring, it was with the idea of just teaching on this issue of spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, a lot that was going on today. I didn't know it was going to come down to this. And so on my last Sunday message, I'm telling women to be quiet. (laughs) And on Wednesday night, my final Bible study, I'm trying to explain to you how you cannot lose your salvation, although everything in the passage looks like you can. But it's not really that way. It's very clearly taught. So we'll go to Hebrews 6 on Wednesday night. Come join us. Um, If you haven't been there at all in the past, you won't be any more lost than the rest of them. So just become part of the the Bible study with us. It's a great time we share together. But in this last passage, it's a long one, but I'm going to zoom through some of it because it's, it's repetitious. It's Paul trying to cover things. He's, he spent time in chapter 12 as men have broken this up. This was just a letter without any references, without any verse divisions, no numbers. But it's been broken up in this way for us to understand that in 12, 13, 14, Paul says now concerning spiritual gifts or spiritual things. He's trying to address the church at Corinth to help them understand what they needed to do. They were in a mess. And we'll explain some of that mess as we get on through here. And so as he laid out the fact that the gifts were given by the Holy Spirit, never to be chaotic or bring confusion, only to serve and to edify. He went into chapter 13, he says, use this as your goal, as your guideline, is to love each other. And so just like at home, you know why they invented prayer at the table? I'm going to repeat that. Because mom wasn't a good cook. You're not talking about your wife, the mom. You're, you're talking about your mom, the mom. The mom that named... The mom who named you Jim because you couldn't spell yuck. <laughs> Comes out of his own mouth, ask him. That's what his mom always said. She was a character, but I don't think that's why prayer was invented. It, it's the slowest down. Did the whole thing when you sit down at the meal, if you're with unbelievers, you ever notice that? They really invite you over. Because you're too religious. But if you get to go to a house of an unbeliever and they sit down, they just dive right in. And whatever's in front of them, they load up. Doesn't matter how much of it there is or who gets what. It's just how the world is. Selfish. 
Prayer causes us to stop and reflect on where it came from. And it teaches our children that they're not the most important thing at the table. Prayer is critical, and it really wraps around the whole idea. It's showing love to one another. You pass the food to your guests, I hope. You make sure they get the best and biggest pieces of whatever's there. You go find some leftovers if it gets around to you and the, the platter is empty. Because God has blessed us and we have lots. But this is what was wrong with the Corinthians. They were selfish. They were, they were only focused on what they could get out of things. So he goes into chapter 13 and he tells them love is required in all that you do. And so in this chaos that they were doing that we're going to look at here in this close, they were elevating tongues selfishly, chaotically, and they were neglecting prophecy, which was the greatest of the gifts that were given out that were useful in the church at that time. And so Paul's trying to explain to them what's laid out. Look at verse 26 with me as we jump into this. I hate context. I want to re-preach chapters 12, 13, and 14 every Sunday. I just want to go over the whole thing so you get the big picture. But even though we have lunch today, we didn't bring dinner. So I'm going to have to hold off. But verse 26, he's trying to tell them, in your services, what is the outcome then? What now, or what's the, what's the inquiry that Paul's trying to bring up about them? What's the whole problem that we've been zeroing in on? And he calls them brethren because these are believers who should not be acting like this. He says, when you assemble, and it's the word hatan, it's whenever or every time you assemble, that's not the point. It isn't trying to tell you just on Sunday mornings. You, you may have an assembly on Sunday night. You may have an assembly on Wednesday night. Whenever you assemble, each one, literally everyone separately has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. What he's trying to bring out there is each one all the time. This is what the church service was like. If you were to walk in, you'd have a bunch of people over on one side all singing away individually, different songs. That's what he's trying to bring out here. You're coming in and you're singing this song to the accompaniment of an instrument, but everyone's singing at the same time. 27 special numbers. Is that chaotic? What would you do with that? You would listen. Well, you know what you should do with that, but if there was really going on, you'd listen for your favorite song and you would gravitate toward that person. What was he telling them earlier in the, in the first Corinthians? I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Christ. See, they were, they were separating out. And so you'd find out, well, my favorite singer is right over there and I can see they're singing across the room. I'm gonna go listen to them while this chaos is going on. But that wasn't the only thing happening. He says, every one of you separately has a teaching. So you got different people in the meeting area that are giving a message. How do you decide which one to listen to? Well, if you can hear them over the music and the stringed instruments, which literally is the idea behind a song, a song sung to the accompaniment of an instrument. You go to this Bible lesson that's supposed to instruct others and you try to take it in, but you can't even pay attention to what they're talking about. It is chaos in the room. He goes on. He says, each one of you has a revelation. It's, it's this unveiling of some new truth from God. And they're standing up and they say, thus saith the Lord. And they proceed to give him the message. The only problem is you got 15 of those going on. Which one's from the Lord? I can't listen to all of them at the same time. But do you see what the people were doing? Me first. I'm, I'm the most important one here. You got to listen to me. Even though others are trying to compete with me, I will stand up and I will make sure that you get my message. And they get nothing. No wonder the world was coming in or an unbeliever would come in and they go, you guys are all crazy. This is ridiculous. You can't function like this. Try doing a school classroom like that. Tell the kids they can do whatever they want for the hour. But tell them to make sure it's loud. Notice the, the psalm is music. The teaching is uh, this message going out, this Bible lesson, revelation, somebody proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. And it goes on, it says, um, everyone separately has a tongue, this foreign language supernaturally spoken, supposedly, but not really, because that isn't how God works. The Holy Spirit is not working in every one of them to supernaturally give some kind of foreign language out, which is supposed to be for a sign to unbelieving Jews, as we've looked at in the past. And in case you're wondering, we have those that are interpreting the supernatural translation explaining the meaning of the tongues. 
You can't hear anything. I should have created a tape. I should have had Brian make up something and, and overlaid all these different sounds and played it for you and say, what's that sound like? You're edified, right? You're really excited. You walk out feeling like I have been instructed. I have been built up. I am excited to dive into the world and make a difference. Is that what you say? So how do you think the Corinthian church was doing? Very poorly. Very poorly. And if you had a house like that, you remember seven brides or seven brothers? Yeah. When, when the, they put out the food for them, and remember how they dove in, almost fighting over it? Whatever's in front of you is what you claim. That's why felt markers were, involved, were invented so you could write your name on stuff. <laughs> or you'd write the thing, I licked this. <laughs> so they leave it alone. This is the picture. This is what he's been trying to deal with, with the Corinthians. And they're believers. Selfish. Remember 1 Corinthians 3. Walking by the flesh, carnal. It's all about me. When do you outgrow that in life? When should you outgrow that in life? Maybe I should put it that way. We talked about those that couldn't speak under the age of two last week. When do you stop being selfish? Okay, you have to work at it. What are, when, what are, who, are, who are the people that are actually selfish or unselfish? Sorry, who are the people that are unselfish? They're believers. Well, dead people, yeah, they're kind of nothing. They're nothing-ish. When you come to Christ is when your selfishness is taken away, supposedly. But then you still have a decision that you need to walk by the Spirit. You need to let the Spirit decide what you're doing or what you're not doing. He's the one that says to you, you're sitting at the table, mom's fried chicken, my favorite. And I always get a breast or I always get a leg and it comes around to you and those are gone. And what's your thought? Do you rejoice because somebody else got to eat your favorite piece? Or do you look around the table to figure out who it was? <laughs> there were two legs. So there's more than one person that's guilty. Paul's coming across this in this first section in their services, and he, they're recognizing that the assemblies were like a madhouse, crazy, chaotic, total confusion, having no impact on their growth. So he makes a statement. The first command, there's 14 commands in this last section. That's a lot of commands. You kind of get the impression Paul's trying to tell them what to do because he's an apostle for their own good. So the first command is, let all things be done for edification. Let all things be, as this idea of this present middle. Don't waste your energy. No exceptions. All activities need to be constructive. Don't do anything that wastes your time. Haven't you been taught that on some of your jobs? Don't take extra steps to get somewhere. Maybe with chemicals because they're, they're doing stuff. Maybe with concrete because it's setting up. Maybe with whatever you may be working on. You've got to be organized and you've got to have a goal in mind that you're moving toward in order to come out with the right product. And this is all he's saying to them is you're not doing it. So my first command, my priority to you is to let all things be done for edification. It's not an option. For building up, promoting spiritual growth, for moving the church forward, each believer toward Christ's likeness, maturity, growth, improvement. So who's in charge? Who's supposed to be in charge? I keep neglecting to say that. Who's supposed to be in charge of the service? Who? The Holy Spirit in this regard, right? He gave them gifts. He's trying to explain to them how to use them. He's got to be the one directing traffic. He's, he's the traffic cop. He's the one making the lights change, blue, red and green. Yellow, if you're not colorblind, you can see those things. They weren't, they weren't paying attention. They didn't care. But it's the Holy Spirit who's in charge. He wanted everything to be done properly and in order, as we see at the end here. His love directed all activities. So how submitted to the Holy Spirit? How committed? How well were they following the Holy Spirit in this passage? They weren't. What do you think is the norm in churches today? You got up this morning and you spent time in the shower, right? You spent time in the kitchen eating breakfast. You spent time in, oh, 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 prayer, we finally got to that or to the word of God. And we kind of pulled that in as if it was secondary. 
And so as he's trying to get to them, he's trying to tell them, you've got to put things back in the right order. You've got to put God first. This has been a problem all through scripture. But the way you can testify to that is when you love one another. That's what we talked about in chapter 13. That's what he's getting into. So he goes to three passages here. Very clear passages or um, principles in, in this passage. And he's trying to tell them three areas that the Corinthians had problems with. Tongues, prophecy, and I'm not allowed to say the word. Women. Women. Thank you very much. You see, if I, wasn't, if I wasn't retiring today, I may be, at best, fired. At worst, crucified. Slow death. Because some of the things I'm going to say here don't fit into our world today. But the reason our world is in such chaos is because they won't let it fit in. So let me stress as I go into this thing, he's talking about subjection by men and women. Don't lock on just to the woman side of it. He's telling them all, you need to be in subjection. You need to line up under a military term that describes obedience. And just because the women have a role that doesn't give them a public place to perform means nothing. God has placed each one. You recognize how many were prophets versus the rest of the men. Not very many. So how did the other men feel? when the chicken plate came around and there wasn't any chicken on it. I didn't get the gift of prophesying. I didn't get the big one. So I made up my own. I decided I'm going to speak in tongues. It's hard to prophesy and have it, people know for sure you're telling the truth or you're telling the future. But, but speaking in tongues, eh, most of you would have no idea what that even looked like. And in reality, from what we've just preached, all of you would know exactly what that looked like. So you think it's some kind of gibberish. You think it's some kind of mystical, um, weird gibberish that, that goes out there, some kind of um, messed up words. And it isn't that at all. Speaking in tongues is speaking in a language. And so he addresses them in the first one, and this was the one they were having serious problems with. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, not a typical um, conditional phrase here. This word here means whether anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. What did he just do? He just put limitations on it and he made it very clear. Orderly, controllable. This is nothing you're going to tell, people are going to tell you. When I'm slain by the Spirit and when the Spirit gets a hold of me, I can't help myself. I can't stop. Then that's not the Holy Spirit. I think we've covered this well enough in recent weeks. I just feel bad when you're visiting for the first week or some of others who haven't been here much and you have no idea what I'm talking about. But he's trying to stress to them this language, this supernatural ability to instantaneously speak a foreign language that somebody else can understand, an unbelieving Jew, on the day of Pentecost because it's a sign to them. And they were impressed. You're, you're speaking my language and not just my language, you're speaking my dialect. You, you have the slang and you're using words that we only use in our language with our dialect. What's going on here? This must be of God. That's what it was for. It was never a gibberish. It was never out of control. It was never for the church services to be using in the way that people claim today, let alone more than two or three. So most churches, probably 90, 95% of them are violating verse 27. And what they're claiming to do is of God. Why are they doing that? Habit, tradition, feeling, how it makes them feel. And the biggest reason is because they're not reading the Bible. I don't need truth. I have the Holy Spirit working in me. God himself is telling me what to do and what to think and how to respond. And they're neglecting the scriptures that give them the very guidance that Paul is recording for the Corinthians here. But he says that, Two are at the most three, each in turn, alternating one after the other. Not the chaos that was going on in the church. One after another. And how many get to do it in a given assembly? Two or at the most, not, not saying you have to have three, at the most, three. And then he explains further, let one interpret. One person needs to translate or explain to those who don't know the language, because it's not assigned to them. It wasn't assigned to the believers. Where's that found? 1 Corinthians 14, 
22. He just got done explaining to them. This is for unbelieving Jews. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, he said it was going to cease, and it did. When Israel was destroyed, or the nation of Israel was attacked, and Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, it wiped out everything. It wiped out the temple, it wiped out the priesthood, it wiped out the genealogical records, it wiped out everything. That's why you have people claiming there's 10 lost tribes today. Are they lost? No. Read Revelation 7 and you'll see, oh, there they are again. They were never lost. It was spread out. They didn't have any way to verify who was who. And they're having that problem even today as they recreate the temple and try to recreate the, the fixtures and the priesthood that goes with it. Very difficult for them to know for sure. They won't even go on the temple mount because they think that's where the temple was. And on my last day, again, I remind you, the temple wasn't on the temple mount. Sorry, they misnamed it. It was in the city of David. Mount Moriah where Abraham had offered his son, where David built his city, where the only water supply is that would feed the temple that required a lot of water. And on and on it goes. What's the temple mount? It's where the Roman garrison stationed 10,000 men. High ground. If you're in the military, that's what you always pick. There's no evidence whatsoever. And then when you go underneath the mosque that's up there and you look at it, you realize it has a rocky crevice. It never would have been a threshing floor for grain. So I don't know where some of this stuff comes from, but you're going to have to figure out when you read the word, what it actually says. And it's in there. It's just that teachers like me, got to watch out for guys like me. They've taught you things and you said, oh, that must be true. Don't ever do that. what they do with the apostle Paul? I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. What did they do with Paul when he spoke? They searched the scriptures daily to see if what he was saying was true. What was the authority? It wasn't Paul. It was the word of God. We need to be doing the same thing today. This is what most churches are getting away from. I had an acquaintance that I went to Bible college with, and the last thing I heard in a church he was in, the elders came to him and told him, we want you to shrink it down now to a 20-minute message. This is an evangelical church. We want more music. We want, we want more of this and that, special numbers and whatever we're going to do. And he said, can't do that. And they fired him. Sad day we're living in. The word of God has got to be lifted up. If you didn't crack it this morning, you're in trouble. You didn't open the roadmap to figure out what your day was going to entail. You're in trouble. And then Satan comes along and he gives you directions where he goes up to the roadside and he turns it. You know, just, just one little quarter turn. Now you're in big trouble. And that's what I'm finding in a lot of people. They don't know the word of God. They aren't reading the word of God. I've interacted with two people this week by uh, phone and by um, text messaging. And I'm realizing when I, they brought up a problem to me and I took them back to scripture, they said, that's a great scripture. They should have had that memorized years ago. That told me they're not reading their Bibles. And they can't figure out how to live their lives. And it's leading them toward great danger. I'm not going to be the one up here telling you that anymore. Although I may do it from afar. I'll send messages to put on the screen. I'll interrupt your service. This is an important announcement from Jack. And all I will say is read your Bibles. And I'll wave and leave it at that. We don't believe God. We don't take him seriously. The Corinthians were in a mess. Paul had to help to establish the church. He's interacting with them. He's trying to teach them. They're a mess. Cruel to one another. Then when you get into 2 Corinthians, they flip-flop the other way. And, and they're, they're needing to, to give um, comfort to someone that they had finally realized, oh, we're going to nail him. He's out of line. Well, why didn't they look in the mirror at themselves? And Paul has to write them again and say, no, 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 no. Back off. Show some kindness, forgive him, he has repented. You, you need to stop. And so he's constantly instructing people. You, you, people ask me, how did you ever get into the ministry? And it's, as a 16, 17-year-old, God opened my eyes and I was starving. And I'm starving to this day. I thank you for allowing me to teach and preach. I've learned so much. This week, it was like a treasure 
chest like a, like a gold mine that I was going in and taking out nuggets and going, oh, I never even saw that before. I didn't realize that was that clear. And some of the things in there, I'm constantly learning. Guess what I'm gonna do the rest of my life? I'm gonna be in the word. If God permits, I'll write a book, but I don't know if that'll ever happen. But I'm gonna have a Bible study wherever I'm at, somewhere. The churches won't have me, they'll be in my house. And I'll start off with a real simple one because I realize I've taken you guys to an extreme. When I bring up the Greek and the, and the different verb and forms that you need to recognize to understand what the t- passage is teaching. But I'm gonna go back to a simple one where I just ask people to bring their Bibles. Ask questions. Take them to it. That's fun. That's not deep diving into the gold mine. That's just finding nuggets right there in the river. But to take people that way, Paul's trying to help them. Paul loves the Corinthians. He's giving them instruction. And he says, if there's no one to interpret, let him keep silent. Do you see that in the outline? I put down here under the tongues idea, speech, silence. Under the profiting, speech, silence. Under women, silence, speech. Oh, what happened? I didn't write that, but I'll get there and show you. But, it, but he's, not, he's not treating the women different than he's treating everybody else. He's just trying to explain to them, here are the boundaries. And so as he walks through here, let him keep silent. Let him hold his peace. Say nothing out loud at that point. Stop talking, tongue speaker. How can he do that? It's, it's an ecstatic language. It, it is bubbling over inside of him. He can't control himself. And so the answer again is, then the Holy Spirit's not behind it. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Love, that big one. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's amazing. That's so simple. It's, it's so straightforward. It's laying out right there. And so he tells them, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're speaking in tongues, there's no one to explain to the ones there who cannot understand it. It's not a sign to them. Then keep your mouth shut. Stop talking, men, if that's who's doing it. That's not taught today. And he specifically says, let him keep silent in the church. And so as he goes on, and second, another command, I'm going to run out of keeping track of these. Uh, let one interpret is the second command. He moves into this part here in verse 28 with the third command, let him keep silent. Fourth command, let him speak to himself and to God. He, he's trying to bring out here the responsibility to speak in his own mind. You can bring it up in your own thinking. You can bring it up to God himself in prayer. But it's not that he's using tongues to teach himself. It's not that he's using tongues to talk to God. He's simply telling them that's your options. But don't do it in the church if there's no interpreter. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Paul has said a whole lot on tongues. He just summarizes with that picture. But he moves in from this recognition that you, you've got to be able to recognize what's being said in the church or don't do it, to this revelation in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Okay, there again is a command. Do it, be prophesying. And another command, and let the others pass judgment. Who are the others? Alloy is a, the others of the same kind, the other prophets, right? This is who's evaluating him. These are the ones who are discerning and deciding whether or not it's truth or error, examining and then separating out those things. That's their responsibility. So as one is prophesying, others are listening and evaluating. You saw that in the Old Testament. Remember when they'd come before kings at different times, just generally speaking, and very, the king would call in different prophets because he wanted to get the right message from one of them. And God's prophet would come in and what did they do? Typically. Yeah, we're not listening to that. That can't be true. And then other prophets would even stand up and say, that's not true. Here's what God's going to do. And then you have an account where the one God's prophet said, if that takes place, then this, this such and such has happened. But you are going to be dead by this day or whatever. He's just laying out things. Which are the true prophets? The ones where 100% of the time, not 99, and a good prophet today that claims to be a prophet or prophetess is maybe 10% because they can read the news. They can guess good. And then they write it in a way that's fuzzy enough that you can kind of manipulate what the answer really was. 
God's prophets were 100% of the time. When he said something was going to happen, it happened exactly like he said, exactly when he said. What has God predicted about his son, Jesus Christ? He's coming back. What is the world going to say in 2 Peter 3? Where is the promise of his coming? For just like it was when our forefathers fell asleep, it remains that way today. I heard somebody say that on the radio recently. Where's Jesus? Mocking. What are they going to do when he shows up? You're going to hear oops in, in about 50,000 different languages or however many are out there. Oops. And then what are they going to do? Fall on their knees? Confess their sins? Repent? No. Revelation 16 tells you they will blaspheme. They will, okay, we, we call it shaking their fist, but they were to, um, I just lost the other one. Refuse to repent. They're not going to submit. See, the whole thing today is when you go into creation that Jim's covering with some of the videos when he's been on fires, you realize scientists all know the truth. They know scientifically that evolution doesn't work. There's no way in the world possible that evolution can work in any way, shape, or form. You can't get something out of nothing unless God does it. And that's supernatural. We don't believe in that, so that can't happen. Evolution's an impossibility, scientifically. I've had un unbelievers, non-Christian professors in schools where I had to go to two years of liberal arts for Multnomah. I had a professor that said, he said, I'm not a Christian, I don't know if there's a God, but I'll tell you one thing, evolution doesn't work. He said that scientifically. He didn't say that religiously or biblically. He was looking at the evidence. Why are so many of us believing in evolution? Because somebody told us it's true. I could get into the whole vaccine thing. I could get into so many areas where we live in a world full of lies. And the real problem is we have a world full of people that are afraid to die. They aren't ready. They don't know Christ. They don't know the future. They're, they're just uncertain, but they don't want it. They're pushing it away. And Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to follow the truth. And so he says, if you have prophets who speak, the others are discerning whether or not what they're saying is true or not. He says, that's good. That's how it should be. But if a revelation is made to another, if something is revealed to another who is sitting down, what does that imply? Initially, the church was doing what? When they were singing a psalm, when they were doing revelations, when they're speaking in tongues, they're all standing up because that gives you recognition. Remember when Jesus read from the scroll? And then he closed the scroll and he sat down because that implied he was done. This is what's happening here. But somebody who is seated receives another, another revelation. How do you know that? Are you getting a revelation right now? How, how would I know that they're getting a revelation? Who are we dealing with? What category here is, is in this second point? Prophets. Prophets who are listening to God and the Holy Spirit giving them information. So when, when the first one's speaking, the first one should realize, oh, my, my revelation's done. Because God has a revelation for the next guy. And so I need to sit down, but I don't want to sit down. Kind of like preachers that want to go on for hours and hours. I don't want to sit down. I like standing up here talking. And so they keep talking. And what happens to the guy that's sitting down? He, he can't talk unless he creates chaos. So he gives him another command here, and he says to him, let the first keep silent. Let the first close their mouth. Let the first prophet, there's a prophet revealing the word of God, a revelation from God. Sit down, buddy, and close it. You're done. No, 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 that can't be. That's how the Corinthians handled it, but it can be. And he's given him this clear command here to stop talking. And he explains in verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one, in order that all may learn, be taught, be informed, and all may be exhorted to be admonished and persuaded. And in this case, it's a passive, which means that I have more the idea of being comforted or being cheered by this message that they're getting at church. And he says in 32, the, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So as God works with those individuals who really are prophets, they've been supernaturally gifted with the ability to declare a message that came from God himself. Then they're reading and they're picking up. The fact that they can discern and pass judgment about each other means they know when God is telling them to stop and somebody else to start. That should be pretty clear. How were the Corinthians doing it? They weren't. Chaos. 15 prophets going on at the same time. Pick your flavor. What is it you want to learn today? And so that's why you can see, I'm of Apollos. I like the way he teaches. Oh, I'm of Paul. No, he's more of black and white, you know, just straightforward, gives you the facts. But I'm of Jesus because I'm spiritual. Or whoever else it may be. You shouldn't be of Jack. I think that's part of the reason why Jack is retiring. It's to bring your church up to a certain point and then they need to follow God. They need to take the training wheels off. They need to step up and open their home for Bible studies. They need to start becoming the teachers. (gasps) You guys still breathing? Are you making any decisions right now? Yes. No. Maybe means no. Why not? Why are we holding back? from passing on what God has given to us? Why are we acting like that stingy little family around the table and says, I got my chicken leg. Let somebody else figure out how to get their own. That's not how it works. That isn't love. That isn't bringing the church to maturity, which is what he's after here. So he tells them to shut up. No interruptions, one at a time. Self-control is evident because the spirit's behind this. God is not an author or or is not a God of confusion. This idea of instability and disorder and commotion. But Allah, a strong contrast. He is a God of peace, of harmony and tranquility and unity. You should never, ever, ever have a church split of real believers. You may have a lot of mixed in people that creates a lot of problems. You should never, ever, ever have a divorce of believers. The only reason people separate, whether it's in church or in a marriage, is because they're being selfish. I'm not getting what I want. And then they come up with a list of reasons. The wife says, well, he's running me into the ground financially. Okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I may have to get in a bread line to eat. Okay. What's the problem? I don't belong in a bread line. I should have a certain level of living. And my husband has failed me. And you know why? Possibly some of them have failed. I better not get off on that rabbit trail. Because you've been leading and leading and leading and leading. And your, your husband finally stood up and said, I'm done. I'm done being led around. Well, you never did anything. I never did anything because you wouldn't let me. You took over. Don't do it for him. Remember the definition of submission? I've been here a while. Knowing when to duck, when God wants to hit your husband. Get out of the way. Don't take over his job because he's not doing it right. Don't belittle him to the children. I could go on and on, but that's why I better not go into that one. That's a message I'll say for a Bible study sometime. But... He's bringing up, he gets to this third one, and this is my point here. He gets to verse 33, and it switches over, and the Greek is clear that it ends at 33b. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, period, in the Greek. Capital letter, and and designation where you can see in the second half of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Now we get to the juicy stuff. He hasn't changed anything. He's not teaching any differently than he did to the tongue speakers, those speaking prophecy, and now the role of women speaking in church. It all goes together. It's all a matter of subjection, of submitting yourself, of lining up under the authority that God has set up. So he literally says here, as in all the local congregations of the saints, let the women keep silent in the Corinthian assemblies. 
That's all he's trying to bring up. Another um, statement, but he's just reversed it, as I pointed out. He's placed a restriction here. Women are to keep silent in church. How does that work? Popular today, isn't it? You get into a lot of circles, especially charismatic Pentecostal circles, and you have a lot of women preachers. It goes right along with the whole tongues thing. They, they didn't recognize what God was trying to do with prophesying, with tongues, and with other areas, and so they've taken over. Are they bad people? Could be your neighbor, and they're really nice, friendly. But they've taken a role that God states right here. Can he make it any clearer? I didn't write this. You could stone me. Crucify me, whatever you want to boil me in oil, whatever it may be. I didn't write it. You want God's best? You want to follow his word? Yeah, but I want to pick and choose. I, I want an eraser, a Bible eraser, so I can take out passages. They they've made that Bible for you already. It's called the Reader's Digest version of the Bible. It's much lighter, thinner, doesn't waste as much ink for those environmentally sensitive. Cut out all the stuff you don't want to hear. They may even have a loose leaf edition where you can pull whole pages out if you decide. I used to have a Bible like that. Pages just kept falling out. But the point is, it doesn't change. As in all the local congregations of the saints, let the women keep silent in the Corinthian assemblies. Stop talking in church. What, what's the context? Come on, you've you got to die with me. You can't leave me hanging here. Tongues and prophesying. What's he telling them not to do? Don't speak in tongues and don't prophesy in the assemblies. Don't be the one teaching the men. That's pretty straightforward. Do we like those words? Is it saying that women are dumb? Is it saying that women are incapable of carrying out those roles? No. When the men subject to one another and one prophet sits down to let another one speak, is it saying that prophet's dumb? Or he's incapable of prophesying? No. What is the rule that guides and gar or overrides all of this? Order. Okay, order ultimately. What's the bigger rule? Because he says it right there. Just as the law says. If you go back to Genesis 3, what happened in Genesis 3? Mankind sinned and who led the way? Eve, the woman. Now the husband didn't lead. He just went along with it. But she told him either you eat the fruit or you don't eat again. I will take your lungs out through your nose. Isn't that what now reads in the Hebrew? There are a lot of men sitting out here with trying to protect their lungs. Now it just makes it really clear that it was Eve who chose to disobey. And she specifically says there, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she, also, she gave also to her husband and he ate. So he made a conscious decision here. But when you get to verse 16, he says to the woman, here's her penalty. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Is that true? Notice it says multiply pain. There, is, there was pain before the fall. Minimal. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband. Your desire to rule over him. But he shall rule over you. That's been the struggle all along. And he laid it out. It was part of the consequence of sin. But you go to the world today and there's no sin. Look at 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, as I'm heading back to Genesis. And again, another familiar passage. I know someone that shared this with somebody recently as they told me the story. There's a lot of people that cut this passage out of their Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Does that sound familiar? Who wrote this? Paul writes to young Timothy, the young pastor, maybe over the church at Ephesus. Let a woman quietly receive instruction. What is she not doing? Speaking. She's not talking. She's not giving instruction. She is to quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach 
or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There's that ugly word. Silence, quiet. Why did, why did God do that? He explains right there, verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So it's the order of creation. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. That's the reason right there. And I get into a lot of other things, but I will take forever to, to finish those off. That verse and 1 Corinthians 14 are crystal clear what the role is. What's wrong? Women are speaking, men are being silent. Women are leading, men are following. Why? And that, look at our world today. Look what they're promoting in every way, shape, and form. They can't wait for our president to be gone so they can have the Secretary of State rise up and it's two women leading our country. Why? They're not opening their Bibles and saying, oh, I recognize creation and the fall and Adam and Eve and God's instructions that I want to defy. What's, what's wrong here? Who's ultimately in charge? Satan. The same one that led Eve down the wrong road and she followed is the same one leading our country down the wrong road today. And they're following. And they're trying to figure out why everything's so messed up. They aren't following the instructions of the owner, the creator, the God who made it all, the one who tells you how it works. Why are children going bonkers? Because dad's not leading. I deal with too many who are afraid to tell their children no. And they're afraid to tell them no by the time they're teenagers and then they want me to fix it. I, I've only got one way to fix it. Put them in a barrel, feed them through the knot hole. And then when they turn 16, plug up the knot hole. That's the only solution you have. Or God gets a hold of them and he uses things like trials, severe trials, maybe the military, maybe a lot of circumstances in their lives and they come around when they're 30 and 40 and they realize the road they traveled didn't work. And then they start getting frustrated because they come to me. Why didn't my mom and dad ever tell me? Why didn't they set an example for me to follow? And I could have avoided a whole lot of heartache. I went looking for a woman that was a leader. I didn't look for a woman who's submissive. And they totally misunderstand that. Every officer in the military is submissive to somebody, except for the President of the United States. They all submit. They all stand and line up. They all salute. They all follow orders. They are restricted, and that's what that military term describes. We think submission is this ugly thing that's only being pressed upon women. It's pressed upon life, and if you don't teach it to your children, you are going to destroy them. Learn how to submit. How to have self-control over your body. How to say no to things that are bad for you. Lead them to Christ. And the Holy Spirit will work with you in the process. But it's not automatic. I mean, some of us are perfect. But, but for most people, you didn't even crack a smile, most of you. But for most people, it's hard. It's a lot of work. It's this constant struggle. The, the Spirit should win out all the time. But my flesh keeps saying things like, what are my phrases? Oreo cookies. Mudslide ice cream. What are yours? Come on. Confess right here in public. They can't see your faces. They won't know who said it. You have them. You know the things you got to stay away from. Never go. My wife and I learned early on. Never go to the store hungry. Ever. You go shopping after a meal. And if it's going to take too long shopping, then bring a snack. But do not go in a store hungry. You will buy. That's what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. She goes, wait a minute. I'm looking at this stuff. Man, this tree's great. The fruit's great. What, what's the problem here? I ate it. It tasted fine. I gave it to my husband. He ate it. What's the problem? It was instantaneous. They ran away from God. And they're still running today. The only one who can bring the solution of eternal life for them. The only one that can overturn what they did wrong in the Garden of Eden. They want nothing to do with him. Why? What, what are they afraid of? They've been lied to. 
They think God hides behind some heavenly billboard and, and when you do something wrong, he comes out and just mushes you because that's what he thinks. If you think that, go look at his son, Jesus Christ. Why do you think there's four gospels? Why is there so much information for us to see about Jesus? So you'd understand who God really is. God went to the cross and died. God submitted himself to the heavenly father, God the son. He knows what submission is. And even said in the garden is he agonized, not my will, but your will be done. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. I don't know who you think he is, that he's out there some monster that's, that's just evil and only wants to restrict your life and make you miserable. It's the other way around. I am full of joy in Jesus Christ. I am ready to die in Jesus Christ. I am ready to sacrifice my life to help somebody else that might threaten me because of Jesus Christ. I don't worry about money. Every time I turn around, God keeps providing things for us. I, you just trust him and he takes care of your needs richly. You guys are listening a lot today, sorry. I used to love the old days when I would ask questions and interact, but then I realized women were to keep silent. And I had a few once in a while decided they wanted to do a sermon. And I went, okay, I got to stop. But he gives them a command there. Let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. Genesis 3.16, 1 Timothy 2, it's laid out from creation and from the fall. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands. <gasps> oh, no. The men hate that verse. Because what's the first thing the guy says is? I don't know. Go ask the pastor. And your answer is supposed to be, well, God told me to ask you. When my wife asks me questions I can't answer, what am I supposed to do? Go find out. I go talk to the pastor. I go call up somebody. I go pull out some books. I go do a Bible study. I've had her ask questions, and I went in and did a whole Bible study just to figure out the answer to that. I don't give out flippant answers because of where I think, that, that word can be misused today, but that's not how I used to use it. But, but I don't give out those kind of answers lightly because they're, they're so important. And you need to know what God's word says. And this is what he's clearly laying out. And he gives the command here, let them ask their own husbands. The term for ask here is not the normal term. It's a strong term that's trying to bring out a, almost a challenge not, not to challenge the husband's leadership, but to say, I need you to do this. I, I'm dependent on you. And it's a term used when questions are asked between equals, if that makes the women feel any better. It's a term Jesus uses when he addresses his father because he's equal to him. One more reason why you have to recognize from scripture that he's God, God the son. He doesn't use the normal term for asking that is more of a subordinate to a higher up. He uses this one. And so the woman that comes in her, in her relationship with her husband, they're, what's the term they use? She's a helpmate, but they are one flesh. Okay, one blood. They have that, real, that unique relationship. He, he doesn't dominate over her. They make decisions. I, I bring up things to Bev all the time that we're talking about what we're gonna do. And then sometimes it comes down to a hard decision where somebody has to make up their mind. And I take that responsibility. Not, it's not her decision, it's mine. And you can tell the kids that. Here, dad decided this, get mad at dad. But better yet, submit. Trust that God's gonna work through your father to lead you into what's best. Because I love you and I'm not trying to harm you any more than God is doing here. But he goes, as he wraps up and he goes to the end there, I know I haven't touched on everything you want to do. Well, I left out one phrase there. Let him ask their own husbands for it is improper for a woman to speak in church in case Paul hadn't made that clear. The word improper there, it is shameful. It is dishonorable for a woman to speak in a church. No definite article, wherever the local assembly is. He's talking about in a leadership position, the tongues, the prophesying, taking that position to give direction to the church. Women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. When does a child become a man? Okay, 21 would for sure cover it. What did the Jews believe? 
13. It's called Bar Mitzvah for the boys, and it's called Bat Mitzvah for the girls. That one doesn't get emphasized for some reason. But they become women, and the boys become men. And when you go into Roman law, when did they become men? When dad finally adopted them. Remember, we talked about the whole adoption thing in Romans. You have not been adopted yet as a believer. <gasps> Romans 8.23, we're still waiting for our adoption. It isn't that you're not God's child. It means you're not being given the authority and the inheritance to reign with him. That's what adoption has to do. This is what he's trying to bring up when he goes into the church. All of us have a role to play. It has nothing to do with male or female in the strict sense of that. It has everything to do with God picked you to be a male. God picked you to be a female. And right away, he put you in a category that he expected you to obey and submit in. And if women understood the role they had and the power they have when you submit, knowing when to duck when God wants to hit your husband, can accomplish much. You're in the way of God. You're the one who's kept your husband from becoming all that he's supposed to be. You don't respect him. You don't speak well of him when you go out and talk to other people. You put him down in public or with the in-laws or whatever way it may be. Don't ever, ever do that. And if you've done it in the past, then go to your husband and ask him to forgive you and tell him you're not gonna do that anymore. Now it got really quiet. Paul's trying to get rid of the confusion, get rid of the problems they were having and get, address the real issue. And that is let God lead your church. Let the Holy Spirit determine how and when the gifts are gonna be used. Who's gonna get them? Who gets to speak? Trust him. When we get to the new, new Jerusalem as believers, when Christ returns and we go to reign with him forever and ever, what is the role of men and women at that point? What will you be in the resurrection? There's neither marriage nor given in marriage. I leave you with that. I don't know, but I'm looking to find out if God still leaves us distinct that way or if something else changes as well. But now in this age of transgender and um, cross whatever, it, it's not a good thing to bring up. But this has been a designation that was supposed to be eternal. Adam and Eve were supposed to live forever and ever as male and female. So I'm not saying it isn't going to stay that way. I just, I look for things. I have, I have shelves everywhere. I told you when you can't remember or don't know something, just put it on the shelf and keep reading your Bibles and God will bring you back to it later. I've got shelves and warehouses full of questions. <laughs> but that's okay. What I know I need to live out. And so he closes off this section in summary, verse 36. He says, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? That, that's an interesting way of stating that. Are you the source? Did you write the Bible? Are you the one that we should all look up to and, and um, recognize you're the great authority? No. Well, and then he says, or has it come to you only? Are, are you the only one that has received that as one of the prophets? You know better than everybody else. Nope. I'm not the source. I'm not the authority. And so he says there, as God guides, and you recognize that it's God guiding, not men. He says in verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet, first class condition, since anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, and that's what many of them are doing. Remember how they're all doing it? They're all prophesying. Is that how the Bible declares it? No, the Holy Spirit distributed in chapter 12, individually, unique gifts. And he said back in chapter 12, the end of it, not everyone's a prophet, not everyone's a teacher, not everyone has all of these gifts, but they were living that way. But he says to him, if anyone thinks, or since you think you're a prophet or spiritual, that you're a spiritual man, that the Holy Spirit is one working through you, that you are so Christ-like, then if you're really that high up spiritually, then command, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's, or a, a commandment of the Lord is how I would translate that. If you know that much, then you need to recognize that I am da, 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 Paul, the apostle, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. <laughs> if you recognize me as an apostle, if you recognize what I'm writing as God's word, then you will recognize that the things that I'm writing to you right now are true. They're inspired of God and you need to follow them. 
If anyone does not recognize this, using a form of gnosko, if they're ignorant experientially of this fact, then he is not recognized. You're out. You're not going to prophesy because you're a false prophet. That's how sure Paul was of who, what his position was and what his responsibility was. He took the lead. He wasn't afraid to take a stand. He wasn't elevating himself or thinking proudly. He was recognizing this is what God has set up. It's what we're going to do. That's what a man does in his home. That's what I did in my home. I love my dad. And I've shared with you before, came out of a very bad situation with an overbearing mother and a very wimpy father. I did not look up respectfully to my grandfather. And I'm sorry to have to even say that. He followed her. She dominated my dad. Very badly. And my dad made some decisions along the way. But one was he was going to love us. In his own way. My mom had to tell me things. What my dad thought, because he would never open up and talk. It wasn't physical. I don't remember him ever telling me he loved me. I wasn't looking for that. I got that from God. And that's where you're focused on. And so as he comes down here, he's trying to help them recognize, follow the truth. Don't follow men. Don't go with what's simple and what's the easy way to go. Do what God says to do. That's what the world's looking for. They will hate you for it in the same way that my children at times hated me. But I had resolved already, even with the amens, that I'm doing things God's way, and in time, they'll come around. If I'm consistent, if I'm real, if I'm faithful, they'll come around. I didn't follow my children, but God wanted them to follow me. They got stuck with me. They didn't pick me as their dad. God did. Sorry to say. And so he's trying to tell them there, recognize the truth as Paul the apostle over the churches. And in the third one, as he, he grants that information of that recognition, then he comes down to the gifts here in verse 38, um, 39. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly. This is the, I'm sorry, I haven't been counting them, but this is the 12th command. Desire earnestly to prophesy. Make that really be a, something you're eager to go after. But he says, but do not forbid to speak in tongues. That's not a problem in the first century. That was not an issue. Do not hinder, do not restrain, do not prevent speaking in tongues, except by the parameters I just gave you. The limitations of two at the most three, and let the prophets discern if it's accurate, if they're really telling you the truth. Make, let that function the way God wants it to function. And then he gets to, down to um, do not forbid as a 13th, and then a 14th command in verse 40. But let all things be done properly. This idea of decently, in a seemly manner, in a fitting way, becomingly avoiding selfishness because you love each other. Remember, love is not or does not act unbecomingly. He told them that in chapter 13. He says, so love each other and do that in a proper way in your church services and in an orderly way. Again, stressing the idea of something that's planned and controlled and structured. Avoiding chaos. This is what all Paul's trying to say to them. He wasn't done. He went into chapter 15. He got to keep talking. I don't. What I want to hear one day, the main thing is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The second thing I want to have and that I long for is to find people in the new Jerusalem and on the new earth that came to Christ and I didn't get to find out how they turned out. I left the previous church uh, with a man that had great needs and I lost track of him. And when I finally found out years later, he, he was dead. And I want to find out years later that you have moved on, that you have grown in Christ if God will let you stay on planet Earth. That you have grabbed on to the relationship with, with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and obeyed. You submitted to be all that God wanted you to be. And that you took the scriptures and you read them with great delight. Do you know Jesus Christ? Prove it. Let the world see him in you with the mark of genuine love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your perfect love for us.
It costs you everything. We think loving you and loving the world, loving our enemies even, is going to be easy. It's going to cost us everything. So we ask you to help us to not give up, to not lose sight of your instructions and the goal, to keep moving forward, trusting you no matter how bad it looks, that you are going to bring all things together for your glory. Thank you for Paul. I thank you for the price he paid and the example he set. But he would be the first one to testify he did it all because of your son, Jesus Christ. And the example he set and the price he paid. So may we pass it on. And may you bless this congregation that they may grow in you and bring you glory and make an impact, not only on Lapine, but on the world in general. And we thank you in Jesus' name.